If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7, verse 6. In this section of Deuteronomy, God is warning the children of Israel that when they get into the land and they find the land flowing with milk and honey, meaning it's good for agriculture, there are fields of wheat and barley that they didn't plant. There are vineyards that they didn't groom. There are olive trees that they didn't have to tend and nice houses in which to live. To be very careful that they don't get all lifted up in pride and say, look what I did with my hands. Because it's the Lord our God who brings all these things to the children of Israel. So let's pick up in verse 6. It says, for, what's for mean? Because, right? For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. Does the word holy mean they're sinless and perfect? No, it means they're set apart unto the Lord our God. What sets them apart from the rest of the world? Keeping the commandments of God. That makes them different from the rest of the world. It says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. What about the rest of the peoples on the earth? Are they worshiping God? Or are they worshiping pagan idols? Idolatry. And God says, that's not for you. You're to worship me and me alone. And through your obedience, you'll provoke them to jealousy. And they'll say, mine, what other nation has a God like yours? What other nation has laws that are so righteous as yours? And they'll want to come join you. Is that not what God wanted all along? And instead, they went out and joined the rest of the world. Yeah. So let's look back at Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, he says, And you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I'm sorry, what? I was reading 19.6, I know, because I want to say then. But to know what and means, we have to go back to 5. I never do that, I know. Verse 5, now therefore, if, there's that big word, if. It's such a small word, two little letters, but it's got such a great meaning. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What do you know about an if-then construct? It's conditional, right? Will Israel be a special treasure to him above all peoples if they partake in the sins of the world? If they chase the pagan idols of the world? No. It's when they put aside the pagan idolatry. They put aside sexual immorality. They put aside the other sins of the world and dedicate themselves out of faith and love to a holy God. Then they become a special treasure in a holy nation. So that's something to keep in mind in Deuteronomy chapter 7 here in verse 6. When it says, for you are holy people, he's already told them what makes them a holy people. 
Let's look also at Deuteronomy 14, verse 2. Deuteronomy 14, 2. While you're turning there, in the New Testament it says that the believers in Messiah are a holy nation and a special treasure above all peoples. Is that because they're now free to participate in the sins of the world? It's the same concept. It's quoted from the same book that says, Be holy for I am holy. But Peter quotes that from where? From Leviticus. Oh my. And it's interesting where this 14.2 leads into. Yeah, let's look at 14.2, don't we? Let's see. And then you can tell me where it leads into. It begins with four. You can't begin with four. You've got to back up to verse one. You are the children of the Lord your God. What makes us children? What did we study last night? We're children because of faith. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave the front of your head for the dead, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. Cutting yourselves and shaving the front of your head for the dead was a pagan tradition. Are we to worship God like the pagans worship their gods? Absolutely not. So verse 2 says, For because you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, you shall not eat any detestable thing. What's a detestable thing? That's an unclean thing from Leviticus 11. Leviticus 11 is what says, don't eat pigs, shrimp, lobsters, etc. And that's what Peter quoted from when he said, be ye holy for I am holy. So where does this verse lead? Leads right here, doesn't it? It's almost like this is one book from Genesis to Revelation. Teaches one complete unified story. Let's go to Psalm 135. Psalm 135. Brother William? Yes, ma'am. And cutting yourself also, would that uh, count for the uh, tattoos as well? No, tattoos are something different. This cutting is it's becoming a new trend, especially amongst junior high girls for some reason. Taking razor blades and slicing the skin. That's a pagan tradition. They would do that for their gods to shed their blood as a personal offering, offering their blood to the pagan gods. It's what they did for Baal. Yeah. All they had was sore arms. Yeah, all they had was sore arms for it. Yeah. Psalm 135, verse 4. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his special treasure. Why isn't Jacob the special treasure? Jacob is unrepentant Israel. He was chosen to become Israel. That is to grow in faith and develop faith, love, and trust in our most high God. And when he does, then he becomes that special treasure. So God is always careful to distinguish Jacob from Israel. Unrepentant versus repentant Israel. Then Hebrews chapter 12 verse 14 Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Is holiness important? How do we know? Because the Bible says so in black and white, doesn't it? 
Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Is holiness really that important? Can we not just walk in the sins of the world and look forward to heaven one day? Answer is no. Is that what the Bible really says? The answer is yes. That's what the Bible really says. So if we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8 give us two reasons that Israel was so special to God. Verses 7 and 8. It says, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you are more in number than any other people. For you are the least of all peoples. That is the smallest in number. So if God didn't choose them because they were the largest nation, why did he choose them? Verse 8 says, But, here's the reason. Because the Lord loves you. And because you would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So the two reasons are, number one, because he loves you, and number two, because he must keep his oath that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. Where did God promise to bring them out of Egypt? That's back in Genesis 15. So let's turn back to Genesis 15. Genesis 15 verse 6 is where the scripture says that Abram believed God and God accounted to him for righteousness. It's that same chapter where he tells them, he tells Abraham that Abraham's descendants and at the moment that is said, he doesn't have any descendants. When he does have descendants, they're going to have to go into captivity. It tells us why here. Verse 12. Genesis 15, verse 12. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Avram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Avram is Abraham before God changes his name. Why does God change his name? Avram means exalted father. Avraham means father of a multitude. What did God promise Abraham but a multitude of descendants? And Abraham believed that promise, so God changes his name to father of a multitude, even before he has a multitude, because of his great faith. So, verse 13, then he said to Avram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them. That's the Egyptians. And they will afflict them. That's the Egyptians. 400 years. How long were they in Egypt? Not 400 years. That clause is misplaced. It's 400 years from the birth of Isaac until they come out of Egypt. So Isaac is born. Later in his life, Jacob is born. Later in his life, he has 12 sons and a daughter. Then they go down into Egypt. They're actually in Egypt 210 years. So they kind of got the claws in the wrong place. So it should be, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs 400 years. 
So when they were in Canaan before they went down into Egypt, they were strangers in a strange land. Captivity is 210 years. Verse 14, and also the nation whom they serve, that's Egypt, I will judge, that's the ten plagues. Did I hear a question? When they go into Egypt. Mm -hmm. So I will also judge the nation whom they serve. That's Egypt. That was the ten plagues. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. When Egypt told them to get out and go, what did they give them? Gold, silver, robes, animals, all kinds of things. Great treasures. Just as God said 430 years earlier. Verse 15, now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, which means you're going to die at a good old age in peace in the land of Canaan. You shall be buried at a good old age, but in the fourth generation they shall return here for the iniquity. What's iniquity? Lawlessness. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God would not drive the Amorites out of the land of Canaan until their sins were so bad the land could not tolerate them anymore. That's why Egypt um, accepted the children of Israel and put them into captivity until the time that God was ready to destroy the Amorites. Then they could come back. Okay, back to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 7. Oh, this is a beautiful verse in verse 9. Therefore, know, be certain, be sure, don't guess, know that the Lord your God, see the way the Lord is spelled? That's the tetragrammaton, those four Hebrew letters, yod heh vav heh. The Lord your God, he is God. Literally in the Hebrew it says he is the God, meaning there is no other. He's the one and only. He is the God. The faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with, what's the with? Here's the condition. With those who love him and keep his commandments. As Daniel has told us time and again, that word love and that word keep, they're both what kind of verbs? Participles, which means ongoing action. It's not something we did once upon a time. It's one that we keep on going. If you go back to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. I keep adding a word in Exodus chapter 20, and sometimes people get frustrated and say, you can't add words. Well, you can if God does. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, it says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that's in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, and notice I keep saying of generations, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now compare this to Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 9. 
What does God add in Deuteronomy 7 verse 9? Who keeps covenant mercy for a thousand generations. That's how I knew that the thousand in verse 6 of Exodus 20 was a thousand generations. Comes right from the Lord himself. So let's break down Deuteronomy 7 verse 9. No means with confidence. Because of your great faith. Because of all the miraculous things that you have seen God do. What has God done that they should remember? First, we have the ten plagues, right? Did some of those plagues fall on the Egyptians, but not the children of Israel? Did God make a distinction? He did. When he had them put the blood upon the doorpost in the lintel, did that make a sign? Yes, it makes a Hebrew letter. The Hebrew letter is chet, which means life. Through the shed blood of the lamb, they would live. Any pictures there? Of course. He brings them out of Egypt with a great mixed multitude, which pictures the believers that get grafted in later, as they get grafted in as Israel leaves. He brings them intentionally to a place. If you've ever seen the pictures of it, it's, it's beautiful. There are really high mountains on either side of a little bitty valley. And they have to walk through that little bitty valley a very long way until they come to the Red Sea. It's actually the Sea of Reeds, Yom Suf in Hebrew. So there is no place to go to the left. There's no place to go to the right. And now there's no place to go forward. And here comes the Egyptian army down that little valley. They're trapped. Absolutely trapped. So what does God do? He puts a pillar of fire and smoke in that little valley. If you've ever seen it, the valley's only wide enough for a couple of people to come through at a time. That's why the army doesn't go around the pillar. They can't because of the mountains. The little valley that leads down to the Red Sea is absolutely blocked. And in that pillar, Israel gets light and Egypt gets darkness out of the same pillar. And then he opens up the Sea of Reeds, the Yom Suf. And the words say that the water congeals like jello on both sides. And they walk through on dry ground. And once they're across, God removes the pillar. And what does the Egyptian army do? Go home? No, they charge into the Red Sea. What happens to the jello? It melts. <laughs> It melts, and here comes the water, and Pharaoh learns that chariots don't float. And the Egyptian army, which is the mightiest army of the world at that time, is totally destroyed. And what did Israel have to do to destroy them? Not a thing. All they had to do was watch God work. And then he brings them into the desert. A wilderness is a desert. There's no food. How do you feed all these people? So God sends manna from heaven every morning except for Shabbat. So on the morning before Shabbat, God provides a double portion. And he does this until they cross over the Jordan River 40 years later and come into the promised land with the wheat and barley fields ready for harvest. And they complain, yeah, yeah, we got bread to eat, but we don't have any water to drink. So God provides water from a rock. 
And then they come across armies with giants, Sihon and Og. And God destroys them without any effort on Israel's part. They have seen all this. So the Lord your God, he is the God. There is no other, the faithful God. Why did God do all that for Israel? He was being faithful to the covenant he made. He will not break his covenant. Give me a verse, Psalm 89, 34. My covenant I will not break nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Psalm 89, 34. He's the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy. What is mercy? Somebody just taught on that. Unmerited favor. Loving kindness is another way to translate that word chesed. For a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. What about those who hate him? Those who turn away from him? He'll repay them to their face. Ooh, that's not the same thing as being loving and merciful, is it? Sounds a whole lot like a threat. But that's verse 10. He doesn't leave us guessing. Verse 10 says, And he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. Have you heard any preachers lately say that God loves everybody? He would never sentence anybody to the lake of fire. He wouldn't do that. What is this saying? He repays those who hate him to their face. To destroy them. You know what that word to destroy means? It means to totally consume. It says he will not be slack with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Why does God repeat it in verse 10? Does he want to make sure we didn't overlook it? Let's turn to Isaiah 66 and see what it says about repaying his enemies to their face. It will give us a better idea what the Lord means. That word hate isn't just a one-time thing. You could repent even from hating God, right? But if you don't repent... These are people who are given over to reprobate minds. And what's a reprobate mind? Perverse. One who has no interest in God. Yeah. Isaiah 66 is about the second coming of the Lord. It's about the battle of Armageddon. It's about what happens to those who hate God when the wrath of God gets poured out. Verse 14, when you see this, this is the Lord defending Jerusalem as he does in Zechariah chapter 14, verse, I think it's 3. And your bones shall flourish, you shall rejoice, and your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord, that's his protection, that's his mercy, shall be known to his servants. He will protect his servants. And his indignation to his enemies. That word indignation is the Hebrew word za'am, Z-A apostrophe A-M. It is the word used throughout the Old Testament to describe the tribulation period and the wrath of God being poured out. Who's this indignation poured out on? His servants? No, his enemies. Zechariah, I'm sorry, Isaiah 66, verse 14. 14. Mm -hmm. How many categories of people are there in verse 14? There's two. His servants, his enemies. We're in Deuteronomy. What's Deuteronomy going to tell us about those who turn away from his commandments? Are they his servants or his enemies? 
his enemies. Which do you want to be? His servants. For behold, what does behold mean? Is something important going to follow? Yes, don't miss this. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind. Fire pictures God's judgment. Chariots like a whirlwind. It, a whirlwind's a tornado. How many in those days could withstand a tornado passing through? We're talking about tents and tabernacles and things. Nothing stood up to a tornado in those days. To render his anger with fury. Does that sound like he's a little miffed? And is a rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword the Lord will judge whom? All flesh. Jew and Gentile alike. And the slain of the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go to the gardens after an idol in the midst. Idolatry. Eating swine's flesh. What's a swine? Pig. Oh, that's a pig. Bacon. And the abomination in the mouse. There's the other unclean foods. Shall be consumed together, says the Lord. Wait, so, it, Yes, go ahead. I, my, uh, verse 16. Verse 16. Judge all flesh by fire and Sword. Judge all flesh by fire and the sword. You know, later on, I think of some revelations where it's mentioned that, you know, we shall pass through the fire. Now, in could that be considered that everything that we have here will be destroyed so that we should not set our minds and our hearts on what we possess? Sort of. Rather, but rather keep our minds and our hearts directed towards our love towards Him. Develop yep. that love towards Him. Sort of. But remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the believers stand a judgment called the Bema Seat. Right. And all our works are put through the fire to right. see which will survive and which will not. So which should we work to build up? The ones that will survive. Right. Right. Yeah. The treasures in heaven. You're absolutely right. <laughs> So if somebody is sitting here eating a ham sandwich when the Lord returns, or a mouse, a mouse sandwich, I haven't seen many people try those, but it says they're going to be slain. Is that to give them a quicker access to heaven? No, it's not. So are they his servants or his enemies? His enemies. That's food for thought for me. Yes, sir. Yes, it means in the other unclean foods as well. In Leviticus chapter 11, it calls all the unclean foods an abomination. But which one stands out particular in the Lord's mind? Which was the animal that was sacrificed to the pagan gods normally? Was the pig. What did Antiochus Epiphanes sacrifice on God's altar to decimate a pig? So... What does America eat a lot of? Yeah. So to God, eating the pig is in itself participating in pagan idolatry. Even at the beginning of Deuteronomy 14. It says don't eat the detestable things. Why? Because it will make you unclean and abominable. And it was part of that pagan worship. When the Lord cast the demons out of legion, where did he cast them into? A bunch of pigs. 
Where did it take place? It's important. It was at Gadara. Gadara was where they raised the special black pigs that were used for sacrifice to Baal. So when the Lord sends those demons into the pigs, he's given them back to Satan from whence they came. All right, back to Deuteronomy. I'm going to try not to, but you're right. That's where the Lord made the first deviled ham. Okay, let's go to Exodus chapter 20. Ah, oh, we did that already. So let's go to Psalm 68 instead. Psalm 68. Just put in your notes Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. But we've been there already. When I do up my notes, I never know how long it's going to be from one verse to the next. It may be two or three weeks. But in this case, we're right together. Psalm 68.1 makes reference to the enemies of God. It's a psalm of David. Psalm 68, verse 1. Whoops. Oh, man, I have three comments on here. Let's see what they are. It says in Isaiah 66.17, abomination refers to what exactly? The answer is unclean foods. Oh, says, I already answered it. Okay, sorry. Let me answer it better. After 68.1. says, let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered. Let those also who hate him flee before him. That's Hebrew parallelism. His enemies, those who hate him, they mean the same thing. To be scattered, to flee before him. To flee before him is a term <coughs> God bless you, for the enemy in battle getting absolutely strewn a hundred different ways. Fleeing not in a nice uniform ranks, but just scattered like mice running from a fire. Let's go back to Leviticus 11 for a moment. Leviticus 11. Start in verse 41. It refers to other kinds of foods. We'll just start here. And every creeping thing that creeps on the earth shall be an abomination. It shall not be eaten. See, I don't use the words abomination. Abominable abomination means something that's so gross, so offensive to God, it's just not thinkable. Verse 42, whatever crawls on its belly, whatever goes on all fours, or whatever has many feet among all creeping things that creep on the earth, these you shall not eat, for they are an abomination. So what's the world going to do? They're going to grind up crickets and put it in our food and not tell us. Why do they want to do that? Yeah, verse 43, you shall not make yourselves abominable. You shall not what? Make yourselves abominable with any creeping thing that creeps. Nor shall you make yourselves unclean with them, lest you be defiled by them. It says you make yourselves abominable. But Wayne, that's just Old Testament. Okay, turn up to 2 Corinthians 6. It's not just Old Testament. Second Corinthians chapter 6. 
Basically, abominable means something associated with idolatry, something is so offensive to God that it makes you his enemy, offensive to God. Verse 16, and what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people, therefore. First, how are we the temple of the living God? A temple is where God dwells. How does God dwell in your body? Through the Holy Spirit. What does the word therefore mean? Because God does dwell within the believers, therefore come out from among them, that is the idol worshipers, the unclean, the abominable, and be separate, says the Lord. That's what holy means, is to be separate. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I'll be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness, of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Does verse 17 and 18 say, if you're eating pigs, shrimps, and lobsters, that's okay, I'll dwell in you anyway? I'll receive you anyway? I'll be a father to you anyway? It doesn't say that, does it? What is that reference again? That's 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We started in verse 16 and we went through chapter 7, verse 1. That's where theologians change what unclean means in order to match their doctrine. Honestly, I don't think I've ever heard a theologian preach on this. They kind of just act like it's not there, like the Jewish people do with Isaiah 53. And you know what? The rabbis taught that Isaiah 53 was about the Messiah until Rashi, the French sage in the Middle Ages, he was the first one to say, that's not about the Messiah, that's about Israel. I didn't realize it up until Rashi, the rabbis understood that was about Messiah. I thought they rejected it much earlier. But whenever Orthodox Jews study scripture, what commentary do they rely upon for interpretation but Rashi? Mm. Did you have something else? You do. Yes. Um. I could feel vibes coming from that direction. <laughs> Leviticus 11.42. Go ahead. Let's go back there. Leviticus 11. Hang on. Let us get back to it. I had to go back to it. There was a comment that you made, but it's also there in the verse itself where it says, um, neither shall you make yourselves unclean. And maybe it was the emphasis you put on that phrase, you make yourselves unclean. With them. Uh-huh. Yes. So it's a choice. And, yeah, and then when you read Second Corinthians, agreement, is there agreement in the temple, our temple with idols? No. So then my thought was, with regards to, here we go again, with regards to vaccines, and especially the ones that we're finding out about now, but even 20, 30, 40 years ago, we were not aware of what their sources are. Correct. We were what, not and then. what are in them. And I think <clears throat> there's that grace that I see in God 
and his mercy, if we come to that knowledge of, oh my gosh, what have I done, to, to just ask the Lord, Father, I didn't know this, please forgive me for it's that. It's called repentance, and, yeah. And, and I repent of it, and, and I don't want to, you know, and, and heal me. Yeah. And I believe that he answers those kind of prayers. Am I on the right I agree. Yep, that's what repentance is. Now that I know, I'm not going to do that anymore. As we're in Leviticus 11, let's just read two more verses. Verses 44 and 45. This is where Peter quotes from in 1 Peter chapter 1. For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves, which means to make yourself holy. And you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves. That word defile means to make your soul unclean. With any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. For I am the Lord who brings you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy for I am holy. So since we're on this topic anyway. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1. And see how Peter refers back to it. And actually quotes from it. First Peter chapter 1. On the right-hand column of the right-hand page. We'll start in verse 13. Oh my, got six red numbers out there now. Let's see. Cassandra, you've got to go to the book of Maccabees. In the Bible, it just says he committed a great abomination. Maccabees fills in the details. Luke asks, what types of food have crickets in them? The answer is they're not telling us. They're not telling us. So Susie Q answered that, okay. Richard Gray says, my stepdad's getting a pig heart valve next month. Does that condemn him as unclean? That's about as unclean as you can get. I, I won't comment on does that condemn him because I, I don't like the way that's phrased necessarily. But if it were up to me, I wouldn't take the pig valve. You can also get a beef valve. I would do that instead if it were me. What was the scripture reference for I am holy? Okay, I think we just answered that. Leviticus 11 and 1 Peter chapter 1. Here we go, verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober, which means right-minded. Be in your right mind. It's the same word used after the demons are cast out of the demoniac and he's now in his right mind. And rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah as obedient children. Obedient to whom? To God, to the Father, to our Father who art in heaven. Not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance. See, back when we didn't know, now that we do know, what do we do? We do better. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. That's from Leviticus chapter 11. Okay, back on course, we're talking about comments on Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 10. 
And we're up to the comment from Romans chapter 1, verse 28. Romans chapter 1, verse 28. When God gives you over to that reprobate mind that Daniel was referring to a few minutes ago, that's from Romans chapter 1. Start in verse 28. Let me wait till I see pages stop turning. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness. What's another term for unrighteousness? Lawlessness. Sexual immorality. Wickedness. Covetousness. Maliciousness. Full of envy. Murder. Strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they're whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same but also approve of those who practice them. So this says, even if you choose not to participate in these kinds of sins, like the particular sin, you say, it's okay for you, I just don't want to do it. That makes you guilty of the sin as well, if you're condoning it, if you're approving it. The example Paul gives is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where the man is having sexual relations with his father's wife and the rest of the congregation, they don't reprove him. They don't tell him he's wrong. They just pat him on the back and say, well, we're all saved by grace. That's what God's talking about. Yeah. Yes. In the beginning of verse 32... Who knowing the righteous judgment of God. People are debased, they're reprobate, but they still know the righteous judgment of God. Yeah. They're reprobate, he says, but they still know the righteous judgment of God. Tell me a place in Revelation where we can go to see that. In chapter 16, what do they know? They know that the judgments and wrath are coming from God, but what? They shake their fist in God's face. And blaspheme his name. It's almost like people that try to deny that there's a God. It's almost like people who try to deny that there's a God. But it's like, it says here that they know the judgment of God. Yeah, they know down deep that there is a God and that God will judge. So it's like they know their actions are going to have eternal consequences. Yeah, reprobate mind is one who knows but doesn't care. Seared. Seared. Sociopath. Sociopath. In verse 20. In verse 20, chapter 1 becomes very clear. For since the creation of the world is invisible, attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened.
Yeah. People who choose not to worship God choose not to worship God. Let's go back to Deuteronomy. We're on a roll. Whoops, I have a red number one. Let me see. If we don't know that we're eating unclean ingredients in food, then God will forgive us. I would say the answer to that is yes. It's what comes out of the heart. The attitude that I don't care what God said, I'm going to do it anyway. If you don't know that it's in the food, then I don't think God is going to send anyone to the lake of fire for something they did not even know they were doing. So that means it behooves all of us who... That means it behooves all of us who call ourselves Christian to read ingredients and check and stuff. Yeah. And we should be checking. I'll give an example. Yeah. Becky and I were at Walmart a week or so ago doing our Sunday grocery shopping. And we were putting things up on the belt. There were two containers of ragu spaghetti sauce. And I picked it up and said, you know, there's no kosher symbol on this. Let's see what's in it. Turn it to the back. And there's one little thing at the end that says, and natural flavorings. I said, that's going to be pig. <laughs> so she took that back and grabbed a brand that's marked kosher, because then we know there's nothing bad in it. But I remember when I was in Omaha a couple years ago, my sister will confirm, the group of us went out to an Italian restaurant and the owner came over to say hello because we were such a big group. And we said, look, if we order anything that's got pork in it, it's a mistake. We didn't mean to do that, so please let us know. We didn't mean to order that. She said, well, then I got to let you know that almost all Italian red sauces start with pork that they boil pork bones to get the marrow and stuff out of the pork bones and that's what flavors almost all Italian red sauces. Mm -hmm. So you have to be really careful with spaghetti sauces and things. And now they're taking healthy sausage that's actually organic. It can be chicken, turkey, or beef sausage. Organic, very healthy, and 95% of them have pork Casings. Yes. They've got to, you know, you got to have something to do the casing, but they're always going towards poor casing. Yeah. That almost sounds like, I don't know. I don't want to say government. It sounds bad, but it doesn't sound right. Yeah. How many of you like the... They're forcing people to consume poor casings because it's so small. Yeah. The print is so small. You actually, in some, you have to have a magnifying glass to read poor casing. Yeah. They're intentionally trying to get everyone to eat unclean foods. How many of you enjoy the um, artificial crab meat? You've got to make sure that it's marked kosher because otherwise it has real crab flavorings in it. It does have white fish, but they add crab juice just to make sure you get the unclean food. You're buying something that's artificial because you don't want the crab and they don't tell you it's got crab in it. You've got to research it on the web and you'll find that virtually every one of them has crab what? juice or crab meat in it. Yes, Rachel. Julie. Or Julie. Hello, Julie. Yeah. Uh, the uh, spaghetti sauce with the U on it in the circle, that's... That's, that's okay, kosher. Right? There's no no pig in that, right? So what's I just want to make sure. All right, thanks. What's that? What is the symbol that shows it's kosher? There are many different ones. The U in the circle is the best Hesher. That's the most reliable. 
and there's some with K's in a square, there's some K's by itself, there's all kinds of different symbols for the different groups. And if you see the K by itself, there has not been any group that's overseen it. That's the manufacturer saying, we say it's kosher, we don't care what they say. Those you have to really be careful of because they will do things like boil pig bones and they say we boil it so long that it's no longer pig. Well, I'd like to share something. Melanie and I were talking about the ingredients in, in chicken pea and I went home and I read the label and I, and I texted Melanie and I said, it shows Porcine, P-O-R-C-I-N-E. That's pig, yeah. And I, yeah, and I researched. I said, we got to find new food. <laughs> yeah. And the Lord has blessed, blessed us to Good. find different food. But a lot of vitamins that come in a cellular casing, you got to watch. If it says gelatin, and that's all it says, usually that's pork. If it's not pork, it will say beef gelatin or it will say vegetarian or something like that. They're putting pig and um, shellfish and things in all kinds of stuff, and they don't tell you. Yes, ma'am. They have an app. You can scan it, and they'll tell you what's in it. Good. You just have to check things. Yeah, you just have to check things. I told you um, last time I was out in Omaha, my niece had bought some beef sticks that say 100% beef. On the back it says, and there's artificial flavorings. So I looked it up on the web, the artificial flavoring is pork. And then you go, wait a minute, it says it's 100% beef, but they mean the beef that's in it is 100% beef, not that there's not pork in it. They're doing things like that. In my opinion, I could be wrong, but to make sure we all get more unclean food than we know about. Okay, back to Deuteronomy. It's interesting that they call it pig. They call it a natural flavoring. Sometimes. Uh, yeah, okay. Deuteronomy chapter 7. You got to really watch what, what you buy at the store because they, they adulterate it. Ugh. Verse 11. Therefore. Oh, we know what therefore means, don't we? Because you are either God's servant or his enemy. You will either be blessed or you will be judged. Therefore you shall keep the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which I command you today to observe them. Huh. Why is commandment singular? Because it refers back to Deuteronomy 6. Moses said this is the commandment. Right. The commandment is to keep all the commandments, statutes, and judgments. So it is all-encompassing. Right. Not to lump them into three categories. And see that word to observe them? I don't like that word. Because observe can mean to look at. The verb in Hebrew is not to observe, it's to do. To do them. Is it enough to just know them? No, you must also do them. Yeah. The verb there, you shall keep, is vashamarta. It's the word for 
guard. The word for guard, to protect, to treat as valuable, to actually do it. In verse 12, then it shall come to pass. Because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the mercy which he swore to your fathers. Which means if you will not, then God has no obligation to keep his covenant and mercy with you. It was your choice. And you chose to opt out. But the thing I want to know about verse 12 is that word because is not because. What is it? It's Akev. And what does Akev mean? You get to make a decision and this means either a consequence or a reward. That's exactly what this means. It's like when Moses said in Deuteronomy 30, I said before you today, life and death, choose life. God says you have a choice to make. You can choose to obey and do or you can choose not to. If you choose not to, you become one whom God hates. You choose to, you become one who is a servant of God. So your choice has consequences. And that's the bottom line to that word, a kev, is consequences. Me? Yes, ma'am? I'm a little bit tired, so I'm having trouble following my own thoughts, but when you said that... Uh, when I said that, vashamarta, and you shall guard, uh-huh. Well, that's totally different from keep. So it's not totally different. But there is a difference between keeping the commandments versus guarding them. Nope, it's actually it's the same Hebrew word. But I just want you to understand that that word keep in English is a little too weak. Yeah. It's to really put your thoughts and efforts into keeping. It's not a casual thing. If you diligently keep, now you're shamaring. Okay, yeah. To mix Hebrew because and English together. Keeping means, well, I'm doing it. I'm obeying. But that's not the same as guarding that yeah. in my heart or in my mind. Right. the enemy. That, so that's and what that's what God's getting at, is guard it in your heart and in your mind. Make it something that you desire to do. It's important to you. It's not just a casual, yeah, maybe I won't break the commandment today. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. That word mercy in verse 12 is again chesed, that loving kindness that God shows to his loving children. Verse 13 begins to explain the blessings that come from obedience. And the obedience comes out of faith and love. So never think I'm saying we can earn salvation through works because you can't. It's not possible. It never was. It never will be. But there are blessings that flow from obedience. And that's why verse 13 begins with and. He will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb, referring to your children. They will be healthy. They'll be strong. You won't have children die shortly after birth. 
in the fruit of your land, your grain, your new wine, your oil. That is no famine. There will be plenty of food. The increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flock. This is the way wealth was measured back in those days. Your flocks, your cattles. He said they're going to just increase and overflow. In the land of which he swore to your fathers to give you, which means no captivity. These are blessings that grow out of obedience. What happened when Israel turned away from God? They lost all these things, right? They lost all these blessings. They got sent into exile. Which in particular measured the length of the Babylonian exile. They kept what? Failing to keep the Sabbath years. Is the Sabbath important to God? It is so very important to God. Verse 14, you shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be a male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and will afflict you with none of the terrible diseases of Egypt which you have known, but will lay them on all those who hate you. Man, those are some beautiful blessings. But they come as a consequence to our choice to follow the Lord our God and him only. Verse 16. And also you shall destroy. That word destroy means to totally consume all the peoples whom the Lord your God delivers over to you. Your eyes shall have no pity on them, nor shall you serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. The reason God has them to destroy these pagan peoples is if they don't, if they leave them in the land they intermarry with them, they're going to start worshiping the pagan gods. What did they do? They left the pagan peoples in the land and they started to follow the pagan gods. How did God know that would happen? Only he can tell us the end from the beginning, right? Verse 17, if you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? Yeah, he's thinking back to numbers where the spies spied out the land. And what kind of report did he come back with? Oh, they're so big, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. How We can't do this. When he says... If you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? Remember what God did to Sihon and Og, for they were giants too. Let's go back to Numbers 21. In what chapter of the Bible, what book of the Bible do we find the, the spies spying out the land and saying we can't take them? Numbers 14, 15, now we're in Numbers 21 when God destroys Sihon and Og. So it's just a few chapters later that God says, I'll show you what will happen to these giants when they stand in my way. He only devotes one verse of scripture to say, and they died. Yep. So Numbers chapter 21, starting in verse 21. Let's read about it. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, saying, go check your red one out there. Okay. Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into fields or vineyards. We will not drink water from wells. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. Verse 22 means it will cost you not a thing. 
We won't eat the fruits of your land so that you people go hungry. We won't drink the water so they go thirsty. All we want to do is walk on the road. But Sion would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. So Sion gathered all his people together and went out against Israel in the wilderness. And he came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. Why doesn't he fight against him in his land? Because they haven't entered his land. They asked for permission. And instead he goes out to destroy him before they could even get to his land. What does it say about his heart? Then Israel defeated him with the, the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok. Those are two rivers. As far as the people of Ammon, for the border of the people of Ammon was fortified. So Israel took all these cities, and Israel dwelt in all the cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon, and in all its villages. Oh, that tells us something. What do you know about the Amorites? God said Israel would be in captivity until the sins of the Amorites were complete. They are evil, wicked people. Verse 26, For Heshbon was the city of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who fought against the former king of Moab, and had taken all his land from his hand as far as the unknown. Verse 33, And they turned and went up by the way to Bashan. So Og, king of Bashan, went out against them and all his people to battle at Edre. Og is another giant. The Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have delivered him into your hand with all his people in his land. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon. So the they defeated him, his sons and all his people, until there was no survivor left him. They took possession of his land. So in Deuteronomy now, in Deuteronomy 7, the Lord says, if you say in your heart, we can't take these nations, they got giants. The Lord says, just remember what happened to the last two giants. What kind of victory did Israel have by the hand of God? Complete in total. So verse 18, but you shall not be afraid of them. But you shall remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. Egypt was the mightiest army in the world, bar none. How long did it take God to destroy the entire Egyptian army? As quickly as it takes for water to come back and fill up the sea. Verse 19, the great trials which your eyes saw, the signs and the wonders, talking about the plagues, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm, by which the Lord your God brought you out. So shall the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. But there was a condition, wasn't there? What was that condition? Verse 9, with those who love him, and keep his commandments. Notice the love has to come first. And what comes before love? Faith. Do you love a God in which you don't believe? No. So faith, love, obedience. From obedience comes blessing. Let's go on to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 20. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet among them until those who are left who hide themselves from you are destroyed. 
Did God really mean he'd send hornets, or is this just literary cuteness? Let's go to Joshua 24. He literally meant he would send hornets. The big ones. Joshua chapter 24. Until recently, I had no idea what that could be like. Oh, we have lots of yellow jackets, but they're little bitty things. We've had a couple of hornets show up on our porch over the last couple of years that are three to four inches long. Those Asian hornets, they are huge. They hurt. I've been stung twice by before you can take three steps, it hurts so bad you really go to the emergency room. Yeah, imagine a whole swarm of those after you. Yeah, that's what happens in Joshua chapter 24, starting in verse 11. Joshua chapter 24, beginning in verse 11. Then you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. Jericho is the first city you reach when you cross the Jordan River into the land of Israel. And the men of Jericho fought against you. Also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. But I delivered them into your hand. I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you. Also the two kings of the Amorites, but not with your sword or with your bow. I have given you a land for which you did not labor, and cities which you did not build, and you dwell in them. You eat the vineyards of the olive groves which you did not plant. So here's what happens. Israel grabs their swords, they go out, they make their war chant, and they never catch up to the Amorites. Because the Amorites are running too fast in front of them because there's a bunch of hornets between the children of Israel and the Amorites. So the children of Israel go out with the sword to engage them in battle, and there isn't one because they can't catch them. Isn't that cool? Isn't that just like God? Ah. Uh, just like I try and tell people after reading the story of 1 Kings chapter 13. If you tell me that God no longer expects his commandments to be followed, watch for the lion. He's somewhere around close. Back to Deuteronomy. We're still in chapter 7, but we're up to verse 21. It says, You shall not be terrified of them, for the Lord your God... The great and awesome God is among you. Is among you. Why was it in Leviticus chapter 11 that God told Israel not to eat those unclean things? Because he was going to be dwelling in the midst of them. If you close your eyes and think of the camp of Israel in the wilderness, in the very center is the tabernacle. The Levites and priests... They're circling the tabernacle. And then you have three tribes of Israel on the north, three in the south, three on the east, three on the west. God is right there in the center, in their midst. That's what Paul's referring to in 2 Corinthians 6 that we looked at, to say God will be within you. God told the children of Israel that if they continued to eat unclean things, he would not dwell amongst them. They had to be holy, for a holy God was going to dwell there. And Paul just takes that same concept and applies it in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 to the Gentile believers and said, if you expect God to dwell in you, don't expect God to dwell in uncleanness. 
Yes. In verse 21. In verse 21. That phrase among you. Is among you. Uh-huh. Is the same word in Isaiah chapter 12 when it says that the Holy One of Israel will be in your midst? Yeah. So everybody make a note of that. It's the same as Isaiah chapter 12, the same word. Let's look at Isaiah 12 because there's some of you out there going, I don't know what that says. But Isaiah chapter 12 is the promise of the Messianic kingdom that Messiah will live and dwell in our very midst. Isaiah chapter 12, we'll begin in verse 4, which says, and in that day, what day? The day of the Lord. You will say, praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his deeds among the peoples, make mention that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. That's not what the Hebrew says. Hebrews says, make this known in all the earth. That is to proclaim it, to sing it, to cry it out aloud. O cry out and shout to inhabitant of Zion, that's prophetic Jerusalem, for great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. And those are the words you're referring to, right? It's among you in your midst, right there in the middle of you. So let's go to Nehemiah chapter 1. Or Nehemiah, if you like Nehemiah Gordon's pronunciation. Nehemiah, right after Ezra. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 5. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 5 continues this very same thing we've been talking about. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven... O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant, that Hebrew is Shomer Habrit, who guard your covenant, and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. And then in chapter 9 of Nehemiah, verse 32. Yes, ma'am. Let me go back and take a look. Um, it says, Lord God. It says, Lord, the God of heaven. Thank you. Mm-hmm. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and awesome God, who keeps covenant and mercy, do not let all the trouble seem small before you that has come upon us our kings and our princes, our priests and our prophets, our fathers, and on all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until this day. However, you are just in all that has befallen us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. So Nehemiah says, God has honored his promise. He will keep his covenant and mercy with those who love him and keep his commandments, he says, but we didn't do that. And that caused us to be destroyed as a nation, to take, taken into foreign captivity, 
dispersed amongst the Gentiles. And Daniel 9, 4. I just want you to see it's not just an isolated occurrence that the scripture says that he has grace and mercy on those who love him and keep his commandments. It's in Daniel 9, 4 as well. Doesn't it seem like this is always associated with a prayer of repentance? The answer is yes. We have messed up. And it's time for us to straighten up and fly right. And here's how you do it. Verse 4. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned. So Daniel is saying, I know why we're in captivity, Lord. It's not that you failed. It's that we failed. And this, the, the New Testament tells us that we're supposed to learn lessons from the Old Testament. And what the Old Testament teaches us over and over and over again is that if you claim to have your faith in God and you walk in sin, you're fooling yourself. And yet, what is the traditional church doctrine? Is that once you walk down, I'll make a confession of faith, and you can go back to your sins, and God's happy now. We need to learn the lessons. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 22. And the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you little by little. Little by little. Has Israel ever had all the land promised to Abraham? No, but they will. Why didn't they get the full measure of what God promised back in the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? It tells us here. The Lord your God will drive out those nations before you little by little. You will be unable to destroy them at once, meaning at one time, lest the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. If God drove out all the pagans immediately, Israel's not big enough to fill up the land. So the land would lie how? What happens to land that's untended? It gets overgrown. It gets useless. It gets unproductive. It needs to be cultivated. It needs to be cared for. So God said it will increase little by little. Right now, Israel does not even have all the land it had back in the days of Joshua and Judges. But what happens after the Psalm 83 war? Then the borders get expanded out to the limits that God told Abraham they would have in the first place. That's when it's ultimately fulfilled. That's coming pretty soon. Oh, verses 25 and 26 teach a very important lesson, but I got to get through 23 and 24 first. 23, but the Lord your God will deliver you them over to you and will afflict, inflict defeat upon them until they are destroyed. He will deliver their kings into your hand and you will destroy their name from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. But that didn't all happen. Why? What did Israel do? They made a covenant with some of the pagan peoples in the land. A covenant on the name of God. 
once they made a covenant on the name of God that these people could remain in the land and share the land, God would then not drive them out. But did God tell them beforehand not to make those covenants and treaties? He did. Did Israel mean to make those covenants and treaties and keep the people in the land? No, they got deceived. But they didn't go to the Lord and ask. So they were deceived. The people said, oh, we've come from such a far away land. See how moldy our bread is and how old. And instead of turning to the Lord and saying, Lord, should we make this covenant? They just said, okay, fine. Let's sign here on the dotted line. Actually, they didn't sign the dotted lines. They just killed the animals to seal the covenant on the name of God. Eventually, those people become servants at the tabernacle and later the temple. Wouldn't you assume they became believers? Well, I'll leave that to God. It's certainly possible. But did they first infect the children of Israel with pagan idols? Yeah, they did. Yeah. But eventually, they even came out of Babylonian captivity to help rebuild the temple. So it would seem that they become believers. Yeah. Does the scripture allow a pagan to repent and come to God? Yes, they do. Yes, it does. God's wonderful that way. Okay, verse 25. You shall burn the carved images of their gods with fire. You shall not covet or desire the silver or gold that is on them, nor take it for yourselves, lest you be snared by it, for it's an abomination to the Lord your God. That is an awesome verse. If you take their idol, which is a piece of wood covered over with gold or silver, and you remove the gold or silver and burn the wood, can you then keep the gold and silver? No. Once it's been used for idolatry, it's abominable to God. You can't have it. And you could say, but it's just gold and silver. Yeah, but once it's been used in pagan idolatry, God says, what? It's an abomination to the Lord your God. Let's go to Joshua chapter 7. What happens when they don't listen? Joshua chapter 7, starting in verse 10. So the Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned. And they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things. And have both stolen and deceived. And they have also put it among their own stuff. They took silver and gold from the idols. And kept it. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they had become doomed to destruction. Ooh, did God mean it when he said you can't have that gold and silver? Nope. He meant it. Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed from among you. 
Get up, sanctify the people, and say, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow, because thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. There is an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought according to your tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes shall come according to families. So God says, here's how I'm going to show you who's guilty. Bring all 12 tribes and I'll pick one. Send the rest away. Then of that tribe, I'm going to pick one family. Send the rest away. It says, And the family which the Lord takes shall come by households. And the household which the Lord takes shall come man by man. So when he takes one household, the rest can go away. When it comes to that household, he said, Bring them one at a time. What would you think should be happening in the mind of the guilty person? As God sends the other 11. He should be repenting, right? Saying, it was me. I confess that I did it. Then it shall be that who is taken with the accursed thing shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has. Because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord. And because he has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel by their tribes. And the tribe of Judah was taken. He brought the clan of Judah, and he took the family of the Zarhites. And he brought the family of the Zarhites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. Then he brought his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, was taken. Now Joshua said to Achan, My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and make confession to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. At this point, you've got to figure Achan thinks there's no sense in lying anymore, right? And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. And here they are, hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent, with the silver under it. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver under it. They took them from the midst of the tent, brought them to Joshua and to all the children of Israel and laid them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had, and brought them to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Does God mean it when he says, don't you dare do it? Clearly he does. But the point, the lesson that I take away from this is, once something is used to worship foreign gods, can you use it to worship the Lord? The answer is no. You can't use money anymore. <laughs> All righty. So back to Deuteronomy 7. 
Verse 26. Nor shall you bring an abomination into your house. An abomination referring to anything unclean or used in idolatry. Lest you be doomed to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest it, utterly abhor it, for it's an accursed thing. And now we're up to chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 8, verse 1. Here we go. Every commandment. It doesn't say every commandment. What does it say? No, it says all of the commandment. Singular, all of the commandment. Referring back again to chapter 6. All of the commandments which I command you today, you must be careful to observe. That word observe is what? To do. That you may live and multiply. See, there's blessings attached to it. And go on and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. So it refers back to Deuteronomy 6.1. Where God describes all of it as the commandment. And then it goes on in verse 2. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you. What's it mean to test you? To see if your faith is real. To know what was in your heart. Whether you would keep his commandments or not. Why did Israel spend 40 years in the wilderness to test them? To see to know what was in the heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. The book of Hebrews tells us the outcome of the test, doesn't it? Go to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. After spending 40 years in the wilderness being tested, only two above the age of 20 when they come out got to go into the land. And who were they? Joshua and Caleb. Why did the rest get denied entry into the land? It's in verses 18 and 19 of Hebrews chapter 3. Let me check the red number one out here. Yep, yep, I agree. Okay. Verse 18 of Hebrews 3 says, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see they could not enter in because of unbelief. How did God decide whether they believed in him or not? Obedience. Obedience. That's exactly right. So he says they did not obey. They didn't obey because they did not have faith. Is that not what 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 is trying to get across to us? Let's take a quick peek for those who were not here last night. In case you've forgotten the other 782 times we've gone to it. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. These words make the, back, the hair on the back of my neck stand up. They really do. 
Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says I know him does not keep his commandments as a liar and the truth is not in him. This tells us that the standard that God uses to test us is the same that he used to test those in the wilderness. They failed to obey because they did not have faith. He says the same to us. If we are not willing to obey, it's because we do not have the faith. Let's go to Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, where God uses the same word for test to help us understand what he means by that word test. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. Which comes first, Genesis 15 or Genesis 22? Genesis 15, right? Which in verse 6 says, And Abram believed God, and God accounted him for righteousness, right? Right there, salvation by faith. So why, in chapter 22, verse 1, does it say, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. You said that you believe me, now prove it. That's exactly what happens here. And the test is, take your son, your only son Isaac, up to Mount Moriah and offer him there as a sacrifice. So what does Abraham do? He says, okay, let's go. And as he stretches out his hand to kill Isaac, what does God say? Stop. Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven saying, Avraham, Avraham. So he said, Hanani, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him for now I know that you fear God. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So in Genesis 15, 6, Abram believed God and God accounted him for righteousness. Then God tests his faith to see if it's real. And what does God say? Now I know. Let's go to Exodus chapter 15. God knew Abraham's faith was real. So it's almost like this was for Abraham. Like this is for Abraham. Like this was a tip for Abraham to know himself. For, for Abraham to know himself, how deep and how real his abiding faith is. Because God would have asked him to do it if he was been like, yeah, you just don't Yeah, God would not have asked him to do it if he expected him to fail, would he? No. But I think he did it for a second reason. That is for, so that you and I could know how God determines whether faith is real or is not. You know, it's almost kind of like how when God would say to Moses, I'm going to destroy them all. He knew Moses wasn't going to say, yeah. yeah, go for it. Right. Well, you know, there was a third important reason. Okay. A little louder. There's yeah, a third there important a third reason. important reason because there was, and I, my understanding is that Isaac would have been about 40. He, he was not a child. Isaac was not a child, you're right. Okay. So there was a son obeying his father. Obeying his life. father even to the point of death. To mm -hmm. that, and that would have increased his faith right. for the future that he was, would be facing. You're absolutely correct. Yeah. Let's go to Exodus chapter 15 from the Song of Moses. If you read Revelation, you know, we're going to sing the Song of Moses forever, so we may as well learn it now. <laughs> 
Verse 25. The people are complaining to Moses, what shall we drink? In verse 25, the answer comes, so he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. Then he cast it into the waters. When he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made a statute and an ordinance for them, and there he tested them. They failed. The lack of water was the test. What should they have done? They should have prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, we need water. And just as God had provided the manna, he would have provided the water. But instead, what do they do? They want to stone Moses. He tested him. Verse 6 and 26, and said, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I'll put none of the diseases on you which I brought on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. What was one of the plagues he brought on the Egyptians? The water was turned to blood so that they thirsted. So the Lord's trying to get across to them, trust me. And this is, a, is, is, it, is it that it only being three days since they crossed the Red Sea and had that miracle that they turned back from believing? Is, is that three days a significant period? <laughs> it's a very short period, isn't it, yeah. for them to forget all that the Lord's just done. Right, right. They keep turning to Moses and saying, why did you bring us out here to kill us? Oh, they forgot so quickly. Oh, Lord, forgive us. Exodus chapter 16, verse 4. More testing. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. This is before Mount Sinai, whether they will walk in my law or not. What does he mean a certain quota? What happens if they gather too much? Rot. It would rot and have stinky bugs and worms and stuff in it. So the Lord said, gather this much and only this much. And what would the people do? Too much. Gather much more and it would stink and it would rot and it would get worms. And he kept saying, would you trust me please? Verse 5, it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in. It shall be twice as much as they gather daily. Because they were not to go out on Shabbat. And what did some of the people do? They went on a Shabbat, looked for bread. When the Lord said, there be none. And the Lord said, how long will you not trust me? Go to Exodus 20. Wayne. Yes, sir. Can I just put a little comment in here? Of course, Edmund. Um, the, the collecting of manna each day is often used as a parallel for your daily quiet time or whatever. Um, but I, I think they're missing something. Because it, it actually says you take manna for the people in your tent. Right. It's not an individualistic thing. Right. It's the amount for all the persons in your tent. So it's always sharing it together. I mean, you know, studying as in Jewish terms is always together. Right. Christians are 
encouraged an individualistic walk with God, which is fundamentally askew. It's collecting straw for your own bricks. Yeah. You can't do as many bricks. We need to move to the point where we're doing it together as we're doing here. Right. I agree with you, Evan. Thank you for adding that. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 20. You guys know Exodus 20 is the giving of what we tend to call the Ten Commandments. The Bible calls the Ten Words. So Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. That's important. Why does God test so that you may not sin? God wants to deepen your faith. He wants you to know how deep your faith can be. And whether it truly is as deep as you think it is, or if it isn't, we need to know. Back to Deuteronomy. We're up to chapter 8. Verse 3. So he humbled you. That word humbled is actually afflicted. Afflicted. Remember at the Day of Atonement we are to afflict our souls which they say is to fast. Here's why. Because so he afflicted you, allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Oh my, do those words sound familiar? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Messiah said that in Matthew 4.4. 4. Let's go up to Matthew 4.4. 4. Who does Messiah say it to? The devil, Satan himself. This is Messiah's answer to that first temptation. Messiah has fasted for 40 days, no food, no drink. It says, and afterwards, he was hungry. Yeah, no doubt. And Satan says, hey, why don't you make a loaf of bread out of this stone here? Just obey me and do what I tell you. And in verse 4, Messiah answers and said, it is written, you shall, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The significance to me that Messiah repeats these words in Matthew chapter 4. It's which word did God speak in the Old Testament that's no longer important? Every word's important. If commandments had been done away with, God doesn't want them anymore, then this phrase wouldn't be true. He'd be quoting a dead book. But he's not. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What are the commandments called in the Bible? They're called the words. Our English Bible says the Ten Commandments. The Hebrew says the Ten Words. But Paul, yeah, I know, I know. What did Paul say? 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture. Better translated as what? Every scripture. 
is God-breathed, is theonuptos, is what the Greek says, which is so much more expressive than the way they translate it in our Bible here. It says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's nice, but the, the Greek says every scripture is God-breathed. It came out of the mouth of God. That's what Messiah means. By man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's what scripture is. So it says every scripture is God-breathed, theonuptos, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So Paul tells Timothy to follow God's commandments except for which ones? He said all of them. Every one is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And notice it says that doctrine is scripture is where doctrine should come from. Yeah, in Matthew 15 and Mark 7, what did God say about doctrine is based upon man's commandments? He said it's vain, it's empty, it's worthless, it's of no value. Let's go back to Matthew 28. What did Messiah command the apostles to do before he returned to heaven? Yep. Yeah. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. I know if you go to most churches around here and tell them what I'm telling you, they're going to say that's heresy. That's true. Just understand, heresy means it differs from traditional doctrine. And Yeshua came and spoke to them saying, what does that word saying mean? This came out of his own lips, out of his own mouth. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. It doesn't say make converts. It says make disciples. What's a disciple? A student. In Hebrew, it's Talmud. Of all the nations, the word nations means Gentiles. So we're to make the Gentiles from all the nations students. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them, what do you do to students? You teach them to observe all things. What's that word to observe? Nope, to do. To actually do, right? To observe all things that I've commanded you, and I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So does that mean throw out all the commandments of the Old Testament? No. Because who gave us those commandments? The Lord did, yep. And Yeshua is the Lord. So are we... Yes, Miss Susie? The, the word nations there, is that referring to the Gentiles? Or yep. the whole world? Or the Jews? It's referring to the Gentiles. The Jews are already being taught the commandments, but the Gentiles have not been taught. He says, go teach them. How do we know this means to go teach the Gentiles the commandments of God? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The 
And John, he said, the words that ye are not mine, but the fathers who sent me. But turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Are the Corinthians here Jews or Gentiles? They're Gentiles. How do you know? 1 Corinthians 12, 2 says, you know that you were Gentiles. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, start in verse 7. Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are in leaven. For indeed Messiah our Passover, that's the Passover lamb, that word, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast. Which feast? Passover. So Paul is teaching the Gentile believers of the church of Corinth to keep Passover. Not with old leaven, not with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Turn to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Imitate me, just as I also imitate Messiah. These are Gentile believers he's talking to. Imitate me, do as I do, for I do as Messiah did. And I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I deliver them to you. This word traditions is the Greek word parodesis. And that's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word halakam, the way we walk. That is the way we walk in the commandments of God. So he says, I have been teaching you to follow the halakha, the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God as we Jewish people who believe in Messiah do. Go back to Deuteronomy 12, verse 32. Deuteronomy 12, verse 32. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. So does God want us to take his commandments and add tens of thousands of fences? No, he said not to do that. Does he tell us to do away with the ones we don't like? I was just listening to a theologian just this morning talk about, I think they said that only about 5% of today's young people, meaning 21 and below, believe that there's such a thing as absolute truth. That each person must decide for themselves what is true and what we should do, how we should live our lives. Is that what God said, go pick and choose? No. He said, everything I command you, be careful to do it, don't add to it, don't take away from it. If we go back to Deuteronomy 8, as we're running out of time here very quickly. If you say Torah has been abolished and Torah is truth, you're abolishing truth, and then what do you have? You have people that say that I get to pick and choose what truth is. Yeah, you have moral relativism. I'll obey whatever I think I should. And what's serious, this is being taught Yeah. I agree with you. So verse 3 of Deuteronomy 8. He humbled you. That is, he afflicted you. It comes from the verb anah, 
And it's the same word that you see in Leviticus chapter 23. So let's turn back to Leviticus chapter 23. Verses 27, 29, and 32, which are about the Day of Atonement. So Leviticus 23, 27 says, Also the tenth day of the seventh month shall be the Day of Atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls. That's the same word we find in Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, when it says, So he humbled you or afflicted you. That is, he allowed you to hunger. Which is one reason we understand that on the Day of Atonement, we are to have a fast. And we're out of time for this week. We'll pick up next week, Lord willing, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 4.